Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and we are continuing our sermon series in James. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to the book of James. Uh, while you're flipping over there, um, thank you. I, I put out a, uh, a video announcement to the church a couple weeks ago just encouraging people to sit closer to the front, to occupy the, the seats closer up front. And uh, for those of you who have done so, thank you. Um, it definitely has created a little bit more space in the back. Uh, I followed that up with an announcement this week that we wouldn't be serving coffee, and, uh, and as a result, that helped thin the crowd anyway. So, um, so uh, we, have, we had uh, plenty of open seats in the back, so thank you guys, honestly, for, for taking the seats that uh, are a little bit closer to the spray zone. Um, all right, uh, I hope you guys are in, enjoying the study of James. If you haven't picked up one of the James um, books that we produced, I would encourage you to do so. We have them on a table out in the lobby. Um, go ahead and grab one. That, that book will carry you through the next several months here at Trailhead uh, as we continue to study together. Remember, there are three phases to this study. The first phase in the book is designed to, to equip you to do some inductive Bible study or observational Bible study. It gets you into the text uh, before the sermon uh, so that you're reading it and thinking about it, and, and the Spirit is kind of preparing your heart. And then uh, there's a spot for notes during the sermon uh, where you can write down all of your all of your insights and your best critiques. And, um, and then there are study questions that are designed to be brought into community because um, Bible study really never was meant to be an isolated individualistic thing. It was designed to be something that, that we did in community. And so uh, we encourage you to be part of our community groups where we meet and, and we um, continue to discuss uh, what God is doing in the Word of God and in us and, and in us as, as a community. Uh, if you're not in our community groups, you can still um, use those questions as uh, a guide for, for small group discussion or just discussing with others, uh, but I would encourage you to, to engage that. All right, over the last two weeks, we kind of set the stage for our study. Um, we saw in verse 1 that, that James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to the 12 tribes dispersed um, and, and we talked about how that really is, in a sense, um, not just to the first century Jewish audience, but to us, because it is written to God's people who are waiting to go home, right? It's written to God's people who are living in a posture of waiting. They're, they're where they are, but they're not where they will ultimately be. They are living between two kingdoms in the tension of the here uh, and what is already here, and then not yet, and what is not yet realized. And, and that is, is us, right? Um, and the biggest challenge of living in this tension is this thing that James calls worldliness. Worldliness is our desire, uh, our broken, innate desire to do life apart from God, to, to gain the blessings of God apart from the presence of God, to to gain the fullness of life apart from the God who gives the fullness of life, right? We want God to be a friend with benefits. We, we, want, we want all the goodness that comes from the relationship without any of the obligation uh, that comes from, from actually having to be in a relationship with a sovereign God who creates all things and demands our allegiance, right? And, and so um, this leads us into what James calls double-mindedness. Double-mindedness is when we as followers of Christ try to do life in a way that is in line both with this world and the world to come. We try to live in the values of this world and for the blessings of the world to come. We try to live uh, in, 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 in getting all that this world has to offer or what it deceptively offers as, as life while claiming that we still want to claim everything that, that Christ offers. This double-mindedness, or literally being double-souled, James tells us, will make us unstable in all of our ways. It is a tension that will literally tear us apart, because those two paths lead in opposite directions. Those are two different magnetic poles, and we try to live in the tension of moving in both directions. It makes us unstable in all of our way. It will tear us up. So what is the primary tool that God uses to set us free from this worldliness? Well, last week we saw that it was our trials, uh, the areas of our life that are difficult, our sufferings, 
<laughs> we're like, that's great news. Uh, but those are, the, those are the moments when we are most prone to be dependent, or at least admit we are. Those are the moments that we're, we're most likely to see the facade of our independence and self-reliance and self-glory. It is, it is when we are in suffering, it is when we are in trial, that our hearts are most prone toward humility. And it's in those moments that God's grace draws near to us and strengthens us and quietly tells us that He is trustworthy that he is worthy of our devotion, worthy of our love, worthy of our, of our trust. And so the rest of James, as we continue through the book of James, the rest of James um, really is, is James just unpacking specific areas where this plays out in real life. Right? As, as believers who live between the two kingdoms in the tension of the already, not yet, the already won but not yet realized kingdom of Christ, we're living in the kingdom of this world, but, but we're, we're living for the kingdom that is coming with, with Christ. Um, James is, is going to give us some, <laughs> uh, some challenges on how to do this well. And, uh, and typical of James, he starts out with... Uh, with an area that, that um, most of us are a little sensitive about. Um, so today we're going to be talking about money, one of our, one of our favorite topics. Um, that, all right, so here's the thing, you guys. Nothing tempts us to double-mindedness like money. Nothing tempts us as followers of Christ to trying to be double-souled trying to live in two kingdoms by two sets of values, like money. Because money promises that it is the golden ticket to everything we want in this world. Money comes in and, and, and it seems to be the answer, the open door, the answer to every problem and the open door to every blessing in this age. Here's the challenge, you guys. Here's the challenge. This is what we're going to get into. You're either going to, you're either going to live by grace or you're going to live by greed. Those are two opposite polarities. Those are two opposite poles in our life. And this world is going to shape you to be greed-minded. greed, greed minded. But the gospel of Christ is going to demand that you are grace-minded. And those are two very, very different ways of doing life, and there is no middle ground. And so, um, let's take a look at James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11, and then we're going to skip and go to verses 16 through 18. Again, James and the way he structures, uh, he actually, he starts two different thoughts and concludes them with the same, I think, 16 through 18 concludes both those. So, we're going to, we're going to deal with 9 through 11, and we'll deal with the the other, the, the verses in between next week. All right, so starting in verse 9, I'm going to read out loud. You can follow along. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Drop down to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys. Um, we talked about kind of the circles of context. Uh, our, our first week in James, we talked about how when we're reading uh, a book in the New Testament, the first thing we want to do is look at the tightest circle, right? The, the author's intent to the original audience, right? That, that should be our first goal when we're studying Scripture. And, and then beyond that, we want to find out how what he says fits into the broader literature and, uh, of, of the New Testament, what other writers wrote. And we also take into account other other passages that might have influenced that author. So the first and tightest circle is James writing to the, the Jewish first century believers who have been scattered outside of Jerusalem 
um, because of, of persecution. So he's writing to, to Jewish Christians who have been scattered by persecution into Syria and into northern Palestine. And they are living as refugees, right? They, they've been separated from their place of business. They've been separated from their community. They've been separated from their, their local area of, of uh, social support. They are Jewish, which means that they don't fit in with a Gentile world. And they are Christians, which means they don't fit in with the Jewish world. They are isolated and persecuted and vulnerable. And as a result, they are facing serious financial hardship. They find themselves uh, in poverty. Now, ironically, I believe there are others who are actually doing quite well financially. One person's calamity often becomes another person's prosperity. Um, that's kind of the way of the world, isn't it? Uh, where one, people, one person runs into a bunch of problems, another person suddenly finds opportunity they didn't have. And, and so as a result, in the early church, what we are finding is that you're finding believers that are moving into a deeper and more profound experience of poverty and believers that are moving into prosperity and increased wealth. And this creates a tension in the church. And so James is writing into this audience, and he wants to encourage the poor, and he wants to challenge the rich. Now, James, as a, uh, a New Testament writer, relies more on the actual words of Jesus um, than any other New Testament writer. So when we read through the book of James, he just quotes Jesus um, nonstop, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and that makes sense. James was the brother of Jesus uh, and, and was probably hanging around, heard a lot of what he said. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a follower. But I'm guessing he was there at the Sermon on the Mount, um, maybe there waiting until he said something really dumb so he could step in to protect his brother. Uh, maybe he was waiting until things went crazy where he could drag him off. He tried to do that one other time. Um, or maybe he was just curious. You know, maybe at that point he's like, my brother's a nut, but he's saying crazy stuff. Maybe I'll go listen. Um, but here's the thing, the words of the Sermon on the Mount, man, they bleed through this text. And, and there's one passage in Matthew 9, 20, uh, 6, 24 from the Sermon on the Mount that, that obviously is a backdrop to what, what James is saying here. It says this, we have it on the screen behind me. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, Jesus is saying the same thing we just kind of unpacked, which is this. There is no place where the, the raging war of our heart is as intense as in how we view money. Our, our desire to live in the blessings of this world and to gain the blessings of the world to come, to live by the values of this world and to live by the values of the world to come. The, the tension is not going to, to be stronger really in any other area because our worldliness shapes how we view money, right? Our worldliness is our desire to get the blessing of God apart from humble dependence on God. It, it, is, it is our attempt to gain our own glory to provide for our own security, to mark the boundaries of our own pleasure, right? Our worldliness is, is our determination to get the blessing of God on our terms, in our way, in our time. And nothing promises us the ability to do that more than money. See, the world, our culture, our peers, our advertising, our propaganda... Um, man, it just tells us money is the answer to everything. Money is the answer to everything. Now, in the church, this has led to two, two movements that I think are both really off base. One is the prosperity movement. They basically teach that God wants you to be rich. They just basically sanctify greed in the name of grace. And they say, God, you are a child of the king, so shouldn't you live like a king? Right? You are a child of the Most High who owns the cattle of a thousand hills, so obviously you should be eating steak. Right? He, he wants you to be wealthy. He, he wants you to have... So all you need to have is a prosperity mindset. If you have a prosperity mindset, you can get the nicer car, you can get the bigger house, you can have the promotion, you can have all the blessings of this world. 
and all the blessings of the next. The other group that comes out of this is not the prosperity gospel, but the poverty gospel. And the poverty gospel basically villainizes the rich and makes a virtue out of being poor. In fact, it kind of becomes a competition to see who can be the poorest, who can make the most sacrifices, who can do without the most, and ultimately, who can we judge that has more than us? The poverty gospel basically teaches that you're more spiritual if you have less. If you give it all away or if you, if you make sacrificial choices or, or whatever it is. And here's the thing, you guys. Um, both of these, the, the, the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel, are opposite ends of the same spectrum of worldliness. They're both ways of trying to do life apart from God. They're both ways of building up our pride in who we are and what we've accomplished. Look at me, I'm rich. Look at me, I'm poor. Look at me, I'm doing well. Look at me, I'm more humble than you. (laughs) That's a funny one. Um, You guys, neither one of these addresses the real issue, and, and the real issue is this. You guys, let me ask you, where do you find your security? Where do you find your significance? Where do you find your hope? Follow those paths, and you're going to find what you love. Follow those paths, and you're going to find what you worship. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Um, I want to make it very, very clear. Money isn't evil. Money's not the problem. It's the love of money. It's the love of money. It's when we look at money and we say to money, you are going to do for me what only God can do. You're going to be for me what only God can be. You're going to provide my security. You're going to provide my pleasure. You're going to provide my significance. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And it pierces us through with many pangs. All right. Can we admit Americans kind of love money? That's kind of part of our culture, right? Materialism, right? How much more do you need? A little more, right? That's always the answer, right? Ah, Steve, not really. I just, I just want enough money that I don't have to worry about money. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying you just want enough money that you don't have to be dependent on God. That's really our dream that we can be so self-sufficient that we can take care of ourselves. We can be so self-sufficient we can provide for our own glory. We can be so self-sufficient we can provide for our own pleasure. It's kind of a nuisance to have to pray for stuff. You know? I don't know, it causes me anxiety when, when God doesn't show up in my way on my time. If I just had enough money... I could follow God and provide for myself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's a cancer at the heart of our culture, and it has infected the church because we think we really can love money and God at the same time, even though Jesus himself calls that out and says it's impossible. So we put our hopes in money. We, we set our affections on money. We love money. But you can't have that kind of love for money without it killing your love for God. Because you will only be humbly dependent on one God. So that leads us to being double-minded. So that's kind of the premise that I want to start with. We all struggle with this. Let's admit it. We all struggle with double-mindedness when it comes to money. There's no way to live in our culture and not, right? And so 
uh, we all struggle with it. And, and, and I also want us to admit right up front, it's tearing us apart. There are, we have a lot of unnecessary pain in our lives because we're trying to live in the tension between these two um, opposite polar gravitational poles. Living for the kingdom of man and living for the kingdom of God. Living in, in our trust for money and living in our trust for God. And often what we're really asking God to do is bless our little God. God, if you'll just work through my God, then I'll serve you by serving it. If you'll just give me the money I want, if you'll just give me the security I want, if you'll just give me the promotion I want, if you'll just give me the significance I want, then I'll follow you. But if there's anything we learn from the book of James, God does not bless our false gods. He calls us to repent, to tear them down, and to once again renew our humble dependence on Him. And that's the challenge, you guys. That's the challenge. So, so James is writing to this audience, and, um, and, and what he's saying is, is, is you need to be called out of that, right? You need, you need, to, you need, you need to recognize the greed mindset, that surrounds you and you're tempted to have, and you need to, you need to embrace a, a grace mindset, right? Um, so verses 16 and 17. I'm going to throw them up on the screen um, instead of doing my little drawy thing this morning. Um, but verses 16 and 17 start out like this. Do not be deceived. What does that tell you right off the bat? You probably are. <laughs> Let's, generally, when an author comes out and says, hey, don't be deceived, what he's saying is, there's a danger of deception here. And more than likely, you're struggling with it, right? There's a chance you're, you're deceived, my beloved brothers, right? It, it tells us that there's something super deceptive in all of this. Our worldliness tells us that money is the magic key to blessing. And, 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 and ultimately, if you just had a little more, Right? It's not like we want to be the richest people on the face of the earth. We just want a little more. We just want enough that we're not dependent on God, right? Don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. All right, so we have a hard time believing this because we really think all the good gifts come from Apple or or the new car dealership, or the housing market, or the stock market. We really think the best gifts come from, from things we can own or things we can experience. Right? That's been the newest push of this real weird materialism thing. You don't want to own stuff. You want to experience stuff. Don't spend money on stuff. Spend money on experiences. And, and that somehow seems more organic and less materialistic, but it's kind of the same thing. Right? You can travel the world and experience every culture and eat every kind of food and see every sight and at the end of the day still be absolutely exhausted with a conflicted soul because you're still trying to feed an appetite with something that was never designed to feed it. You're trying to get the blessing of God apart from the promise of God and the presence of God. Don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. Listen, all the stuff that's truly worth having comes from God, because he's kind of like the original stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing that exists that he didn't create. <laughs> Every beautiful thing you see is a reflection of the beauty of him. Every good experience you have, is a, he's the one that created your taste buds, and he's the one that created the perfect taco, right? He is the one that, that created your deep desires, and He's the one that created the experiences that satisfy those desires. He is the author of the original stuff. Why do we think we can get our best fulfillment apart from who He is and how He gives His presence? Don't be deceived. True joy, true meaning, true purpose, true value, true pleasure. God created it all. Don't mistake the source. Right often when we're double-minded, we think God gives good stuff, but He also withholds good stuff. We trust God with the salvation of our souls, but we don't trust Him with the ordering of our lives. We trust Him with our future, but we don't trust Him with our today. 
And so when it comes down to the nitty-gritty choices of what we do with our finances or how we order our lives or, or what, what I should pursue or how I should uh, work out my, my, my sexuality or whatever, it's, it's like God gives good stuff in the future, but i got to fight for good stuff for myself now. Don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, from the one who created it all. In fact, he is uh, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The father of lights is an interesting uh, title for God. Um, I think it means that, that he is the one who gave birth to the heavens, right? So it's speaking of God as a glorious creator. He's the one that created the starry expanse. He's the one who created the, the, the sun and the moon. He is the one that created the, this incredible vastness, this incredible beauty. He is a God of infinite power and infinite beauty. He is the Father of lights. But unlike what he created, there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is being poetic here. He's, he's, he's drawing to mind how, how when you look at the heavens, these things that God has created, the Father of lights, they're always moving. They're always changing, right? It draws to mind this idea of the twinkling of a star, this idea that, it's, that it's, it's, it, 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 it varies in its intensity. He's not like that. He's not like a star that twinkles that varies in its intensity. It's not like the, the sun that comes and goes. He is not like the moon that, that is sometimes full-faced towards you and other times completely hidden. He's not like that. God's intention towards you is absolutely set. There is no variability. There is no shadow of change. God is intent. He is absolutely set. To gain his glory and give his blessing. He will gain his glory in you by once again redeeming his image in you. And he will pour out his blessing on you as his son, as his daughter. James is calling us to see God as trustworthy. Not only powerful, but trustworthy. God not only created the heavens, He not only created all the beauty, He didn't just create all the good stuff. He created it with the intent to bless, with the single-minded intention that it might be a blessing to you because as He blesses you, He glorifies His own goodness and perfection. We are blessed. When God gets His glory, we get our joy. When, when God is exalted as the, the author of all that is good, we are freed up to enjoy all that is good. There is no variation or shadow due to change. How can I trust His intention? How can I trust that He is that set to bless because we've already seen. God has already shown his heart when he showed his hand, right? He goes on, James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He gave birth by the word of truth through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. Listen, how can we trust God? Because God has already paid our greatest debt. He paid the ultimate cost. When Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die as our substitute in our place, taking the consequence of our sin and removing our shame so that when he rose from the dead we could be covered in his glory, God revealed his heart to us. Our greatest debt has been paid and our greatest blessing has already been given. It's only a matter of realizing and experiencing more and more of what's already been given. There's nothing left to be earned. There's nothing left to be accomplished. There's no battle left to be won. Christ is the victor and he is marching into his kingdom in victory and he is calling us to be part of that train of victory. Now, buried in this is this interesting phrase, of his own will, he brought us forth. 
of his own will, he gave us birth. Um, so, happy birthday to those of you who have birthdays this month. Um, I always think it's interesting when we celebrate and congratulate the person who was born. You didn't do much. I mean, honestly, you just kind of emerged, right? Who did all the work? Your mama. Who bore all the pain? Your mama, right? Your dad was involved, but not much. <laughs> like five minutes just doing what he thinks about doing all the time anyway, right? So, so your mama, your mama did it all. So when it says that by his own will he brought us forth, who bore the cost? He did. Who bore the pain? He did. Why? So that we would be blessed. What motivated him? His own will. He didn't give you new birth because he found you attractive. He didn't give you new birth because there was something in you that was so winsome you won him over. He didn't give you new birth because he saw in you the moral fabric of greatness that with just a little bit of work could be brought to the surface. No. He gave you new birth because he chose to give you new birth. God, in his sovereign will, chose. I will give you this blessing. And see, James is bringing this out in this place, not to challenge us theologically, but to comfort us emotionally. Listen to me, if, 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 if God's work in us was the result of His sovereign choice for us, if He did it not as a response to us, but as a response to His own sovereign will, how secure are we in that work? Absolutely. If we didn't win him over with our beauty, we cannot lose him with our ugliness. If we didn't win him over with our success, we can't lose him with our failure. James is saying God is single-mindedly devoted to bless you because he has chosen to do so. And when he chooses to do something, he does it. He is the father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation. He does not change his mind. He does not lose his way. He does not grow tired. He will bless. He will cleanse you of your worldliness and bring you into the full blessing of his presence, even if you are kicking and screaming in the process. He will bless. It's an incredible statement. God did it because he chose to, and this is an incredible comfort to us because what we didn't earn, we can't lose. And then he says he did this so that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation or of his creatures. So James is reminding us here that, that you guys, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. You, you have just tasted the appetizer. You haven't even gotten to the main course. You are the first fruits of, of his creatures. The blessing only gets better and bigger. See, God is creating a new humanity for a new kingdom. A humanity that has been redeemed and is being restored. A humanity that will be what it was intended to be at the beginning. Men and women created in the image of God, fully bearing that image to his glory and in our joy. That is the kingdom that is coming. That is the kingdom that is here and is already breaking in. And this kingdom, listen to me, is your primary home. It's where you're waiting to go. It is the blessing, the deepest blessing your heart is yearning for. You think it's money. It's not money. 
It's not the promotion. It's not the praise of your boss. It's not the admiration of people on the street. It's not the new vacation. What you are craving is the very presence of God because it will meet your deepest needs in ways that nothing else can. And it will free you to stop trying to use God's blessing as a substitute for God and actually enjoy God's blessings. It will actually increase the joy of your life. It will actually make you more stable in every area of your life. You will actually be able to enjoy the prosperity that God brings into your life, and it will help you to endure the suffering without you always being like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth, trying to find a security that simply cannot be found outside of the presence of God. This is your primary identity. So whether you're struggling with poverty or whether you're struggling with prosperity, this should be primary in your thoughts. So he's saying is, is, is don't seek the good things of God apart from the God who gives them. Have a mindset of grace. I have received. I am blessed. Right? Don't esteem your worth by how much you have. Right, let's go back to James 1.9 now, right? Because this is what James's point is in, in, in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the, let the man in poverty boast in his riches. Let, let the man who is not esteemed by the world boast that the God of the universe esteems him, loves him, and has exalted him. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Don't adopt the greed mindset of the world. Right? The world tells us, if I have more, I'm worth more. That's what the world tells us. And if we're honest, most of us believe it. If I have more, I'm worth more. If I have a nicer car, I'm worth more. If I have a nicer house, I'm worth more. If I take better vacations, I'm worth more. If I get to go to nicer restaurants, I'm worth more. If people, if people see my wealth and treat me in a very specific way, I'm worth more. Don't adopt a greed mindset. If I have more, I'm worth more. If I have less, I'm worth less. Don't believe the world's lies. The world that despises you and rejects you as never being enough. Don't define yourself by their opinion. Don't adopt a greed mindset. Don't see your worth as being based on temporary and arbitrary things. Adopt a grace mindset. See the world not by what you have or don't have, but by what you've been given in Christ. Don't see the world through, through how people perceive you. See the world through how God perceives you in Christ. See, listen, you might be deprived of dignity in this age. You may not get the respect that other people get who have more money, who dress with nicer clothes, who show up with more fanfare. But you will not be deprived of dignity in the age to come. And the reality is your dignity isn't rooted on how people treat you. It's rooted in how God sees you. So James is encouraging those who are suffering from poverty. You are exalted. See the world through that exaltation. See, see the, the humble circumstances around you, not as a sign of your worth, but as a signal of your longing. Do not see your suffering as the rejection of the blessing of God. See it as an invitation to renew your hope in the kingdom to come. Boast in your exaltation. Let it lift your head with hope and fill your heart with dignity. Right? Boast is a strong word. It doesn't just mean make sure you have this thought floating around in your head with a bunch of other thoughts. It means it should be so rooted in your identity that it becomes your pride. 
this is what lifts my head. This is what gives me hope. This is what gives me energy to go through the day. I have been exalted in Christ. I have been raised from the dead with Christ. I have been forgiven and cleansed and made new. And I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I am a beloved son. I am a beloved daughter of the Most High. And the Father of lights, the one who created all things, looks at me with a single-minded intent to bless. Let that be your boast. Let that lift your head. Let that be the marker of your identity and the foundation of your security. Not how people see you. So his encouragement to the poor, boast in your exaltation. His encouragement to the rich, while flowing from the same source, takes a very different course. He says to the rich, boast in your humiliation. Well, that's nice. Boast in your humiliation. It seems harsh. But listen, he's addressing the temptation that the rich have. What he's saying is, is, don't believe the hype. People may treat you like you're something special because you got a cool car, you got money, you're able to you're able to show up and get the fancy seat at the restaurant. You're able to eat at whatever restaurant in town you want to eat at. People give you fanfare. People give you respect. People give you praise. Don't believe the hype. You're not all that. See, people treat the poor with contempt, and people treat the rich with favor, right? It's like Murphy's Law. Uh, No, that doesn't work. (laughs) I guess it's more like the law of thermodynamics, right? The law of entropy. It's just a law. It's the way things are, right? People treat the rich with favor. People treat the poor with contempt. People abuse the poor. People do favors for the rich. I was listening to a celebrity talk about how after she became famous as an actress and she would go places, she's like, it doesn't even make any sense, but people are giving me things all the time. People give me cars. People give me really, really expensive clothing. Why? Because they want people to see people wearing. They, they want me to wear it. They want me to drive it because when I do, somehow, you know, they, they just give me things. When's the last time people just randomly gave poor people stuff other than the change out of their cup holder in their car? We give favor to the rich. We like what they can do for us. They like how they can make us feel about us. Be important people. You know, if you can brush shoulders with important people, somehow that makes you important. We don't like the way poverty makes us feel. And, And you guys, listen to me. This warps our perspective of life. It warps our perspective of the blessing of God. It leads us to to not see as things really are, but through a a warped perspective of how the world tells us it should be. Boast in your humiliation. See, when you have money and influence, people will suck up to you. and, And when people suck up to you and tell you how great you are, it doesn't take long for you to start to believe it. Because you have power to get what you want, to do what you want to protect yourself from the consequences of your own behavior. You start to think you deserve special treatment, that you deserve a greater share, that somehow your wealth is the result of your greater intellect or your greater effort or your greater moral fabric or you're just simply the greater of your greatness. You just start to think you deserve what you have, and obviously they don't because they don't have it. Hey, rich folks. Boast in the fact that you're a beggar in need of grace. Boast that the God of grace met you in your need and he gave you greater riches. Because like a flower of the grass, you will pass away. In the Middle East, 
um, in the mornings after the dew comes down, the grass would flower. It would be beautiful in the morning, but the afternoon desert sun would come up and scorch the flowers, and they would simply disappear. This was a very graphic image for, for, the, for the audience that, that James was writing to, right? He's saying, look, think about that bloom in the morning because that's the glory of your wealth. Remind yourself that, that it, is, it is temporary and it is not real. Do not be deceived. Your net worth is not your true worth, right? The rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. Listen, I don't, let me give you a little reminder here. hundred years from now, all new people. Quote Voskamp. I don't care how much money you got, you're going to die. I don't care how many business deals you're in the middle of, you are not indispensable. I don't care how many people are dependent on you for their income, you're going to be gone. No matter how much you have, you're going to die too. No matter how important you perceive yourself to be, listen, this is not real. What the world perceives as permanent glory is passing, glimmering, twinkling. It's not going to last. Don't boast in the wealth of this world. Boast in your blessing in Christ. Because listen, the blessing of Christ allows you to enjoy your prosperity without being enslaved to it. Rich people, when you are able to boast in Christ... You're able to enjoy what God has given you instead of trying to find your ultimate security or identity or glory or pleasure in it. Because your deepest needs are met in your relationship with Christ, it it frees you to use your prosperity instead of being enslaved by your prosperity. It'll equip you to be content. (laughs) You can't buy that. I don't know if you've thought about that. Contentment is way better than money. Contentment flows from a heart that is filled with love, not from a life that is filled with stuff. God will equip you to be be content, and that will equip you to be generous in all the right ways. One of the great blessings of prosperity is that it frees you to generosity. It allows you to be a blessing to others. It allows you to to receive grace and in grace flow in grace and be a blessing of generosity to others. Jim Elliott, who gave his life for the gospel and sharing um, the gospel with Inca Indians and unreached tribal groups, said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a guy who gets it. That's a guy who boasts in his humiliation. All right, so let me just wrap up here. Where do we see ourselves in this passage? Are we the rich or are we the poor? All right, well, this is the weird thing about America is we're weird. We are some of the wealthiest people on the planet. That is beyond dispute. If you live in America, you are among and are one of the wealthiest people on the planet. If you have ever traveled around the world, you've gotten a small taste of just how incredibly privileged you are. But by all measurements, as wealthy as we are, we all feel poor. It's this weird thing, man. And it's because we're surrounded by people who have more than we do. They have nicer cars, bigger houses, better vacations, and we see that, and it just makes us feel poor. And, and so this is the weird thing. Most of us don't think of ourselves as poor, but most of us don't think of ourselves as rich either. We feel poor and we're aware that we're blessed, but, you know, we could use a little more. I think the reality is most of us think of ourselves as temporary humiliated billionaires. I mean, honestly, most of us are just waiting. Like, I know it's coming. I'd, I'm supposed to be rich. I'm supposed to be one of the 1%. I'm supposed to be, right? I'm just temporarily humiliated. It's okay. I'll get there, right? And <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. We feel entitled to wealth, and we feel defrauded by our poverty. We are weird, a little psychotic. 
So what that means is that we need to listen to both challenges. We, we need to listen to both challenges. Listen to me. You are not what you have. And you are not defined by what people see or don't see about you. You are exalted in Christ. Do not adopt a poverty mindset of greed. Adopt an exaltation mindset of grace. By the same token, be humbled in your pride. Use what you've been given to bless others, not to protect yourself. Don't put your hopes in what you have or what you can have in the next promotion or the next vacation. Because the greatest blessings in life don't come from what you have or even what you experience. The greatest blessings in life come from being loved and learning to love. And it's only as we learn to bring our material wealth into servitude to that goal that we'll be freed into the true joy of the kingdom of Christ. Seek the truer and better blessing that grows out of your faith in your Father of lights instead of in your lust for wealth. Let's be grace-minded, not greed-minded. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you are so determined to bless us. We thank you that you, um, you refuse to be put off by our pride. <laughs> Even when we are determined to get the lesser blessings, you never shake your head and walk away and just leave us in the poverty of our money. You love us and you call us into the unspeakable beauty of the flowing of your love and in the experience of your grace. Lord, will you awaken us to the incredible privilege we have in Christ? Will you awaken us to the gratitude, the profound gratitude that should grip our hearts as those who have been loved and blessed beyond measure, that we truly would boast in our exaltation? And will you then show us, Lord, how to manage our prosperity for your glory, how to hold our wealth without loving our money, learn how to serve others, to be a blessing to others instead of hoarding for self, knowing, Lord, that the greatest blessing comes from the free movement of grace not the greedy hoarding of wealth. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.